Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 44 this morning as we pick up, continue the story of Genesis. Uh, here at the tail end of the story, uh, we're in the, uh, the section that deals with Joseph. Uh, he's gone down into Egypt, he was sold there into slavery by his own brothers. Uh, he has risen to power and prominence, and now uh, he is being used by the Lord to bring the Israelites from famine down to Egypt where there was food to preserve Israel and by preserving them to bring God's promises uh, to pass to the whole world that uh, the seed of Abraham will be as the stars of the air and uh, the sand of the sea. So Genesis chapter 44, uh, you should also have a little sermon notes page in the bulletin. There's a kids notes page in the back as well if you want to take, if your kids want to take some notes, write out some questions uh, or some answers to some questions, uh, that's in the back as well. So Genesis chapter 44, then he commanded, Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks, these are his brothers, with, uh, uh, with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with the money for the grain. And he, the steward, did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men went, uh, were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He, the steward, said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered a sack to the ground, and each man opened a sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my, servants, my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servants. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. And he alone is left of, of the, his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. 
We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one from me also, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, we will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, meaning the grave, death. For your servant became a pledge of safety, For the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And all of God's people say to these words, Amen. Well, it was one of those kinds of storms. Not only was the rain a torrential downpour, but the lightning strikes were severe. And traveling by foot in the middle of the storm at night was a 22-year-old student. As he ran to get into the safety of the city, its walls and a roof over his head as fast as he could, he ducked trying to hide from the strikes of lightning. One such lightning bolt hit the ground near to where he was running, which caused him to cry out with urgency to Saint Anne that if she would save him, he would become a monk. This is a part of the story of Martin Luther and how he became a monk and how the Lord used him Uh, to rediscover the truths of the Word of God. But what it illustrates is this, that in desperate times we often pray our best, urgent prayers. Desperate times call for desperate measures, sometimes we say. And in desperation we pray desperate, urgent prayers. And what Luther was doing there, as he was praying out in desperation to St. Anne that if she would save him, that he would become a monk. Obviously, it was God who ultimately saved him, not a saint. Uh, It illustrates a theme throughout the Bible of urgency in prayer in times of desperation. Uh, Hannah prayed urgently for a son, that the Lord would give her a son. And if he would do that, she would then lend him back. She would offer him back to the Lord for a lifetime of service. 1 Samuel chapter 1. David urgently prayed many times, but for example, one of his urgent prayers was when his son Absalom was pursuing him to kill him. He prayed these words in Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes? Peter prayed urgently as he was called out by Jesus out of the boat to walk upon the water to come to Jesus. And as he walked out on the water, he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. 
as he was drowning. Jesus urgently prayed, My God, my God, on the cross, why hast thou forsaken me? And no doubt you too have prayed urgently. If you haven't, you will. Praying urgently to God for, say, a healthy birth of a child. We've all, those of us with children, have prayed for that. We pray for employment. Uh, We pray for safe travel. We pray for wisdom in our jobs, how to be a good Christian in our jobs. We pray for wisdom in tough situations. Uh, We pray for those in dire need. We come to the story this morning again of Genesis and the story of Joseph, this narrative of Joseph. His brothers again sold him into slavery. uh, But yet he, in the providence of God, the plan of God, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's sold then uh, by those traitors into slavery to Potiphar's house. He's then taken from Potiphar's house, put into prison. He's raised from prison uh, to go into the house of Pharaoh. And now he's reigning and ruling over all of Egypt. The Lord is using him. He's selected him out as as an instrument, as a means to save not just himself and his brothers and his father and, uh, and his extended family, but to save the world. Without Joseph's being sold into slavery, without Joseph's suffering, without Joseph's being humbled, without Joseph uh, suffering and experiencing injustice, there would be no salvation. There would be no promise of God that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would have a son uh, and they would have many more sons. They would fill the whole earth. There would be no salvation to us. And we've seen all these sort of images and pictures and corners of the story and, and little details and big picture as well that in all these things, we're seeing the Joseph story that it's a picture to us of that great salvation to come. That God already back then, thousands of years ago, probably about 4,000 years from where we sit this morning, uh, he was already planning and orchestrating the world's salvation in Jesus Christ. And our story is about urgency. The urgency of redemption as Joseph's ingenuity plots a way to draw down all of his family into Egypt. And then we see Judah's intercession, his urgent prayer, that he would spare, spare Benjamin, but take me instead. We see in Judah's urgent intercession a a powerful demonstration of the salvation that is to come by Judah's greatest seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the story then. Here at the beginning, uh, we're picking up where we we left off. Joseph's brothers had been accepted into Joseph's house. Uh, Joseph has shown great mercy to them. Remember, he he acted harsh towards them. Uh, It was all a part of his plan. But as he acted harsh towards them, and as they responded in, in desperation... Joseph, of course, says that his his emotions burned hot. And so he went into a private room and he cried out. He he prayed. He sobbed tears. And he he would then wipe his face and come back out. And he then fed them. And we saw last Sunday, at the end of chapter 43, that that they have uh, all experienced this lavish feast. They've been given great hospitality. They have uh, drank wine to their heart's content and their heart's merriments. And the story picks up now. It's now sometime in the evening of that feast in chapter 43. And Joseph, as they've all been eating and drinking and feasting and, and fellowshipping and reminiscing and showing, expressing love and, and care and, 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 and amazement at God's plan 
so far. He orders that all their sacks that they had brought down from the promised land to Egypt to, to get some grain. He orders that all their sacks are filled to the brim with grain. And that their money is not taken in, in payment, but their money also is given back to them. But especially he has a little plan, a little plot, a little ingenious idea for Benjamin's sack. Fill it up with grain as well. Put his money back inside there, just like his brother's. But take this silver cup, the cup that I drink from, and hide it in his sack. The next morning they wake up and they are, they are sent away. They're sent back home with their food to survive the famine, to give to Jacob and to give to all their extended family, their brothers and sisters, uh, to give them food, to sustain them. Yet Joseph is up to something. Joseph is doing something strange here as the story begins to sort of brew and percolate. Only a little while after they leave, he orders his steward to, to go after them. They've laid in their donkeys and they're walking the long trek back to the promised land and no doubt he's on uh, horseback and probably with chariot uh, to rush out to find them. And he goes up to them and he stops them and he says, Why have you repaid? The Lord, Joseph, with evil for all the good that he's done to you. He's welcomed you into his house. He's given you all the food that you need. He's not even taken a dime for it. He's eaten. He's drank with you. And you have repaid his good with evil. Now Joseph is showing us, again, his... His ingenuity, his wisdom, the sort of the way that his brain works, right? The gears are in motion here, and we get a, get a little glimpse of that. His wisdom, his mind, his plotting, his plan. A, a part of why the Pharaoh was so enthralled with him that he became the second in command of all of, all of Egypt. But we see, again, a faint reflection here, a, a shadow, a picture of the mind and the wisdom of Christ, Joseph's Lord. You see, if it was hard enough to get his brothers to come down to Egypt with Benjamin, remember that they came down without Benjamin, got their sacks filled, they went back up, and then they were caught, right? They, he put their money back in their sacks. Joseph had plotted that as well. Uh, and so they had to leave Simeon behind. They all went back. Judah, uh, 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 Jacob tells them to go back, of course. And if you take Benjamin, uh, I'm going to die. And so if it's been hard enough to get all the brothers down with Benjamin, the, the youngest son, if that was hard, how much harder do you think it's going to be to get Jacob to come down? An old man, a man whose health has, has been failing him, to get him to go down to Egypt, to leave the land that God had promised to his father Abraham and Isaac. But we see his wisdom here. We see his ingenuity. We see his plotting, his planning to get not just Jacob, but the whole family, the whole promised people, the whole church to come down to this land. That's the only way that Joseph can save the family from famine, ultimately, as we'll see in chapter 45. There's five more years to come of famine. This has just been two years in the story so far. Five more years to come. 
is it possible for Jacob to even make the trip down? Can they continue to come down? Is it possible for them to, uh, will you have enough food to give them? Are they going to stay alive with the, fam- the food that I've given them? And so he plans, I've got to get them all down here. It's been hard enough to get just Benjamin down here, now I've got to get my dad down here. And so he devises a divine plan to bring salvation to his family and ultimately to the whole world by placing his silver cup in the sack of the beloved little apple of Jacob's eye, his youngest son here, Benjamin, the son of his right hand, right? This is, this is, this is his favorite little son. And he puts the silver cup in his sack. The son that it was so difficult to pry from, pry from the household of Jacob. And he puts it in his sack. The steward overtakes him. He delivers the message as Joseph had instructed him. We, we, we read there. And the brothers defend themselves from this accusation. And then notice it leads to verse 9. A, a rash vow. Whichever of your servants is found with the cup shall die. And we also will all be my Lord's servants. You probably heard the old adage, uh, loose lips sink ships. You heard that one? It's like only, only those of us who are, uh, I'm 48, so 48 and above know that, know that phrase. Okay? Loose lips sink ships. Don't overpromise and under-deliver. Uh, don't, don't uh, say too much. Don't say too much. Especially about things that you're not really aware of, what's really going on, and it's life and death. Loose lips sink ships. And it's almost like there's a drum roll in the story. There's this big reveal going on now. They all take their sacks up a donkey's backs. They lay them all in order from oldest to youngest. Drum roll, right? Drum roll, please. What's going to happen? The drama, the tension, the story here. He opens up every single sack. Grain, money, grain, money. He does it, uh, what, ten times? Until we read in verse 12. It gets to the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Whichever of your servants is found with the cup shall die. What does that mean about Benjamin? What's going to happen to him? He's going to die, right? They've just made this vow. Whoever is, has the cup is going to die. The rest of us are going to be slaves for life. And it's there in the beloved son's sack. The one that they had to, 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 to rest from their father's arms to get down there. And in response, verse 13, the brothers, notice... They tore their clothes in utter fear and utter dread. We are dead men. Father is a dead man. Benjamin is going to be a slave forever or he will die too. We're all dead. But you see here the wisdom of Joseph, the wisdom of Christ. The wisdom of Christ. The prophet Isaiah once said that... The Lord's ways are not our ways. You probably know that, that, that famous phrase. The Lord's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, right? His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The Lord has a way of working and a, and a way of being wise and ingenious, right? That's why he's God. But we see that 
faint reflection of that here in Joseph's way of organizing and, and doing this strange, strange thing. You see, just as God's wisdom is concealed in the ordinariness of the cross, so too the, the wisdom of God here is concealed in Joseph using one of the oldest tricks in the book, right? Hiding something in someone's bag that they didn't put there to, to get them on the hook for something else. It's one of the oldest tricks in the book, and here he is. And so we say with one of our hymn writers, we say, how marvelous, how wise, how great, how infinite to contemplate Jehovah's saving plan. The only way to get Jacob down, the, the patriarch, and all the family to save the holy family so that they might be blessed and protected and so that God's promises might, be, uh, might continue and be true. That God's promise doesn't come to an end. The only way is to get them all down here. And so Joseph does this strange story, this strange plot, this ingenious way of working to put his own silver cup in the bag, in the bag of the beloved son, Benjamin. How marvelous, how wise, how great, how infinite to contemplate Jehovah's saving plan. And Joseph's ingenuity here leads to Judah's intercession, his praying, right? His, his urgent praying. Joseph has an urgent sense of getting the family down, so he, he very urgently and very ingeniously plots. And then Judah, sensing that in response, has a very urgent intercession here. Joseph sort of like playing, as they, as they say, like, uh, you know, he's playing chess while the brothers are playing checkers, right? He has this big plan. They, they're, not, they're not even aware of it. They're all sort of down here playing checkers. Sorry if you're, like, if you're a checkers fan, but, uh, you know, he's up there in the clouds with this ingenious plan of God, and they're sort of down here just worried about food and, you know, dad's health and, and Benjamin, you know, what's going to happen to him? What about us, you know? So, but, but look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Uh, not only do all the brothers fall down, again, right? This is back to chapter 37 when, when Joseph had that, had that first dream that all these stocks of wheat were going to bow down and, and humble themselves and serve Joseph, right? They, they, they bow down again. They prostrate themselves. They humiliate themselves before Joseph. But notice, again, just like last Sunday, we begin to see Judah sort of uh, stand, you know, rising up as this leader, as this promised leader. And so his name is specified here. When Judah and his brothers came. Notice that. So Judah's now taking the, the role of a, of a leader, right? He's the planned, uh, we'll see later on, he's the planned family line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Judah and his brothers, when they come, they prostrate themselves. And so why is he mentioned? Well, he's the one who pledged himself for Benjamin. He's the one who pledged himself to Benjamin. All the way back in chapter 42, when they were in the promised land, telling uh, Father Jacob, you know, we, we can't go down to get any food unless we bring down Benjamin. The man told us if we came down without him, we were dead men. We would be enslaved, and then you would all die up here in the promised land. And so he said, uh, you know, Father, let me stand in this place. If anything bad happens to him, it'll be on my guilt for eternity. Again, sort of a rash vow, right? Don't speak about things you're not really aware of and, and things that are just too high for you. But, but he said it. So he, he's already pledged himself in the place of Benjamin to his father Jacob. 
And so Judah's life and Benjamin's life are bound up together. You know, they, they, are, they are blood brothers, as it were. What happens to one happens to the other. Judah goes on to confess the guilt of the brothers and pledge all their lives as Joseph's servants. Verse 16. Joseph's wisdom, though, is shown again as he will only take Benjamin as his servant. Right? The, the vow is, if anyone or whoever has the, the cup in their sack, that one's going to die. And the rest are servants. Joseph says, no, nah, it's okay. I'll just take Benjamin as a servant. And the rest of you guys can go back home. And the chapter then unfolds here. Judah's urgent intercession to Joseph. And most of it is just a recounting of the story so far. He's recounting. Right? The sacred history Ordinary for them, but for us, sacred history of their coming and going to Egypt, how Jacob had instructed them and refused to let Benjamin leave his sight. Uh, he relents. Judah explains that if he goes back to Canaan without Benjamin, Jacob's going to die and go down to Sheol, meaning the grave and sorrow. And that's why, again, verse 32, Judah became a pledge of safety for the boy and would bear the blame. So there's a, there's a double benefit here of this intercessor, Judah. A double benefit. He's doing two things. He's benefiting in two ways here. He both pledges and he pleads. He pledges himself in the place of Benjamin, but he's also pleading. He's pleading with Joseph. And what's so fascinating about how God's plan works out is that Judah is the line again of promise. From whom would come the seed of the woman, the seed of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is Judah putting his life on the line to save his brother and to bear his father Jacob's wrath. The tension of a situation like that, it's only resolved later on. We'll come to that, Lord willing, next, next Sunday, chapter 45. But, but Judah stands here as a clear picture of Christ again, already way back then, 4,000 years ago. These sort of Christological, Christ-centered ideas of, of pledging oneself in the place of others, taking upon oneself guilt, Pleading, interceding for the sake of others. We're beginning to see a, 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 a glimpse, a glimmer, a little, a little pullback of the curtain and some light coming through it of who Jesus Christ is going to be. He pledged himself in our place as a surety, as a guarantee of the new covenant to save us from Satan, to bear our guilt before the Father. And he also pleads our cause continually before the throne of God's heavenly grace and justice. You see that? Judah is putting himself in the place of Benjamin, bearing the guilt of anything that would happen to him, but he's also pleading, pleading for mercy, pleading for salvation. In the same way our Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of times would come and he would put himself in our place. The Bible calls it a surety. The book of Hebrews calls it a surety, a guarantee of our redemption. All that God had said is found in Christ. He's the yes and the amen of all God's promises. But he's also an intercessor. He's one who pleads for us before the throne of grace. So what are the benefits of Jesus being our pledge? Let me just, I'll end with this. That Jesus is, uh, that, that he benefits us as a pledge and as a pleader. As a pledge and a pleader. One in our place and one who prays for us. So what are the benefits to you and to me that Jesus the great seed of, of Judah, what are the benefits of him pledging himself in our place? 
Well, I, I can think of a whole bunch, but let me just give you three quick ones. First of all, when your own conscience accuses you that you have grievously sinned against all of God's commands, that you've never kept any of his commands, and that still you are from, that, uh, from this point even until the day that you die, you are still prone always to all evil. You still have a sin nature. You still are prone to sin. That's why the Bible says that we must confess our sins, and he who doesn't confess his sins is a liar, makes God a liar. So when your conscience tells you, you are a sinner, you're a sinner, you've done nothing good, you can't do anything good, you've never kept God's commands perfectly, you never love God and love neighbor as yourself, when all that happens, the benefit of Christ being a pledge in your place is that you can comfort your conscience, you can sort of pour cool water over the heat of that conscience, that fear that you might have, by remembering that Jesus is a mediator. He mediates between God and me. He's pledged himself. Already, he's borne my guilt. All the things that my conscience accuses me of having done, of doing now, and, and, and that I will do in the future, all that Christ has taken upon himself already. So when your conscience tells you that you are a sinner, remember what Christ is for you. He's a pledge. He's a pledge. He's already stood in that place of all those sins. Secondly, when the world says to you, so we have our own internal sort of dialogue going on, our own struggles of faith, but the, the world then says things to you. You know, your, your, your life isn't clean enough. You're not successful enough. You are way too hypocritical to say that you're going to heaven and I'm going to hell. What do you say? What do you do? How does Christ being a, 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 a pledge of your salvation, how does that help you when the world is accusing you constantly? You tell them that the gospel is not about you. It's not about your efforts. It's not about how good you are, how good you can be in this life. The good news is about Jesus Christ. He pledged himself in your place for a reason. Because you're a vile filthy, festering sinner. You're dust. You're a worm. You're a withered blade of grass, according to Scripture. You're like a speck of dust. The Bible says that the, all the nations of the, of the earth are like a drop in a bucket in God's sight. If all the nations are a drop, what does that make you? That makes you like a molecule, doesn't it? Right? Outside of Christ, we are nothing. That's the point. That's the point. When the world says, you know, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? There's no way you can be a Christian. There's no way God can save you of all people. That's the point. That's the whole point. Christ Jesus is my pledge. He's in my place. And then there comes the devil. When your own conscience can't trip you up and the world can't stumble you, then the devil starts to shoot his flaming fiery darts, the Bible says towards us. He tries to trip us up, but we are to lift up our heads to Jesus Christ. When the devil builds a wall in front of you, look around it and see Christ on the other side. When the devil makes the world look dark to you, look to that one little flickering light out in the darkness, out in the distance, to Christ. When the devil causes you to sin, run to the cross when, where you deserve to be, but where Christ is for you. And when that doesn't work, 
Well, you feel like that doesn't work. And the devil still is ha- uh, haunting you, hounding you. You turn around and you stand, as the Bible says. You stand and you say to him, so what? I openly admit I deserve death and hell. So what? Christ Jesus died for me. He suffered hell for me. What are you going to do about it? He died for me. He's my pledge. If God is for me, who can be against me? The one who did not spare his own son gave him up for me. Doesn't, doesn't the Bible say that? And if that's true, how will not God also with him, Christ, graciously give me all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, for you, for me. Jesus is a pledge for us. Our, our text speaks of a pledge And Christ is that pledge for us against the conscience, against the world, against the devil. He's a pledge. He stands in our place before God for us. And then, quickly, he also benefits us as a pleader. Here, Judah is pleading. And Christ pleads for us in the greatest of ways. How does Christ plead for me? How does it help me to know that he urgently has pled and pleads for me? before the throne of God's heavenly grace and justice, you can know. You can know that in your doubts, all of your anxieties, all of your worries, all of your struggles, that you have one who prays and whose prayers are not mere suggestions. They're not mere wishes like your and my prayers are. They're not prayers that are mixed with lots and lots of doubts. But you have one at the right hand of God whose very place there and his wounds that he still has just by his presence there at the right hand of God. That is his pleading. That is his effectual prayer for us to sustain us through life's journey. Think about it like this. If if Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ is there at the right hand of God, if he is there and I'm all down here in this muck and mire of sin. But if he's there, where am I going? If he's there, where am I going? I'm going to be with him. Life is difficult now, but I'm going to be with him. And he's pleading for me so that I would get to him. It's not that he's there and then we have to construct a ladder to climb up and find him. No, he's there and he has already constructed the ladder by his incarnation. And he's at the right hand of God and he's by his Holy Spirit. He's, he's moving us. He's enabling us. He's guaranteeing to us. He's preserving us so that we will one day see him face to face. And you can know that despite all of your sins, all of your faults, all of your guilt, we prayed this morning, we, we, have, we, have, we have sins of omission and commission, thoughts, words, and deeds. Uh, there are big sins. There are little sins. All kinds of sins. We are sinners. Despite that, despite all of them, you have an intercessor whose prayers will preserve you until the day you reach eternity and fall before him confessing that salvation is of the Lord. And so here is this urgent, urgent story of Joseph's urgent ingenuity to get his family down to save them. And here's this urgent 
pleading, interceding of Judah. It's all for a purpose. It's all one little story in the big master's plan to bring us to Christ. Do you know him today? Do you know Jesus Christ today? This story is an ancient story and it speaks of all kinds of names and places and, 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 and details and so forth, but it's all about Jesus Christ who came from heaven to earth to save sinners, to stand in the place of sinners because you can't save yourself. That's the gospel. And when you come to Jesus Christ, after you come to Jesus Christ and you still stumble and fall in your sins, he's interceding for you. He's interceding for you, guaranteeing your redemption guaranteeing your salvation, guaranteeing that you can stumble and fall every single day of your life until kingdom come, but he's going to bring you there. That's the gospel. Christ has already accomplished the work, and he's still accomplishing that work in us, and it's guaranteed. And he says, so he says, come to me. Stop trying to do it yourself. Stop trying to construct ladders. Stop trying to, in your own ingenuity, find some way to God. Stop thinking that you, even by your own prayers and all your devotion and all your giving and all, all the things that you might be able to contribute, stop thinking that all that stuff, that God's impressed with that. He simply says, come to me. Come to me and I will be your pledge. I will be your pleader. I will save you from your sins. This morning, the Lord's Supper is meant to, to, to encourage us in this. It's meant to, uh, the water of baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper, meant to show us in tangible form the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of sins, the renewing of the power, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this meal that is meant to connect us to heaven because one day we'll see him face to face and eat with him forever. And so this is meant to encourage you and to push you forward one more day, one more day in faith. Come to the Lord this morning. Amen.